0: a quarter of our, our way through um, the books of Samuel and the books of kings. Um, in these final uh, four chapters, we're going to discover the outcome of Saul's life and his reign. Uh, today, though, we're only going to tackle chapters 27 and 28, and we'll finish up with the rest of the chapters uh, next week. Uh, this morning we're going to look at how David and Saul, how they act in moments of despair, uh, remembering that David he is a man after God's heart, and Saul is a man after his own heart. And as such, one, that is David, is able to remain close to God, and the other, Saul, is not. Uh, we're going to read both chapters, and then we'll see what we can learn from them. If you need a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. And as always, uh, the passage um, and the other verses will be on the screen above me. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 27, and we'll just do chapter 27 first, talk about it, and then we'll do chapter 28. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maach, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gershonites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land, and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremialites, or against the Negev of the Kinnites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. So David, he heads to the Philistines. And why does he do this? Well, he essentially, he he fears Saul. Right? Even though he just walked through Saul's camp, now he is fearful of Saul and he goes to Gath. Now, when was the last time David was in Gath? Chapter 21 was the last time, right? That was after he initially fled Saul and he went there and he became afraid when he found out that Achish found out who he was and he fled from there. And then who else uh, is from Gath that we know of, a famous Philistine? Goliath, right? So Gath is an important city. It's the capital of the Philistines. Uh, But what's different now for David that he's able to go back to Gath after he fled from it a few chapters ago um, in fear? Well, David now has a small army with him, right? Last time he was solo, he's by himself, but now he has 600 men, right, Uh, plus Their households. Um, Now he also has a reputation. Before he was still considered Saul's bodyguard. He wasn't the reputation of Saul pursuing David wasn't known. Time has elapsed. Events have had happened. So David's reputation is he's an enemy of Saul. Thus, the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. So David has some confidence to go to uh, Gath, to go to Achish, to flee the hand of Saul. And when he's there, he. He asks Achish, and he does so in a very humble and respectful way, for a location outside of the city. Because, I mean, think about it. He's got 600 men, 600 Israelites, and then their households. So well over 1,000 people are just going to show up in, in, in the city of Gath, or Israelites. That's probably going to create some issues. Um, and so he gets a city, Ziglag, which is 23 miles to about the south, southwest of Gath, and uh, this creates space, right? Creates space between his people and the Philistines, and he creates space from the eyes of Achish, allowing uh, David to do what he wants to do. And during that time, he spends about 16 months in the land of the Philistines, and during that time, uh, he conducts raids. And in these raids, he kills everyone. He leaves no witnesses, right? This is, this is the future king of Israel, just going to village to village, uh, slaughtering the people. Right, Uh, but he does keep the cattle. He's keeping the spoils, and he's probably giving some of that to Achish as well. Um, So you might be wondering, well, why? How, How is David able to slaughter all these people and not have any blood guilt upon him? How can he do this? Well, the phrase in verse eight helps us, where it says, "For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old." So when we think of that, we have to look back to the Pentateuch, the first five books. Um, we need to look back to the time when Israel, um, at the Exodus, left Egypt <clears throat> under the leadership of Moses and entered into the promised land and began conquering it under the leadership of Joshua. <clears throat> so, when we look at the Gershurites, look to those books. And the Gershurites, uh, per Joshua 13 1 and 2, they resided in the land. Uh, Joshua 13 1, 2 says, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in new years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Gershurites. So they still had to be conquered. So David going and attacking them, it was permissible. It was part of the task that was, that was left to um, be done from Joshua's days, from the days of old. The Gershurites, we're not sure who they are. There's no other clear mention of this group elsewhere. Um, and then the Amalekites, we should be familiar with already. Uh, the Amalekites are the people that Saul, back in chapter 15, was supposed to wipe out, right? He was supposed to conduct harem, total war against the Amalekites, a command that was given to him because of what the Amalekites did to the Israelites in Exodus 17. Remember, they went to, uh, they had a fight there, and the Amalekites, they were still, um, still had to pay up for that action. So all three of these are part of the people who were part of the promised land, uh, that God had given to the Israelites to be conquered, and they had yet to be conquered. So that is how David was able to do so without incurring uh, blood guilt upon him. Uh, we get this command that God wanted them destroyed in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16, 17. Uh, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. Uh, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. And as we go into 2 Samuel and into Kings, we will see David um, bringing this uh, to fruition. Yet, when Achish inquires of David's actions, hey, where have you been? Where did you conduct your raid? David lies to him. Um, Now, some people have tried to make attempts as to explain that David wasn't lying. For whatever reason, people like to keep the character of, of David um, well. They like to keep his character um, unmarred, I suppose, even though, I mean, you can't really do that with Bathsheba. Uh, but they try to explain why well, he wasn't lying. But he was, because they, they try to say, well, he's speaking generically uh, in terms of geographically where he was going. But there's little weight to that. And it's okay to admit that David sinned, that he, he's a sinner, right? He, he is. He, his claim to the throne isn't the fact that he's, he doesn't sin or there's a lack of sin in his life. It's simply rooted that he's been anointed by Yahweh and his soul is chasing ultimately after the heart of God despite his own sins. So are these actions acceptable by David? Is his lying to Achish acceptable? Because we know lying is a sin. We know lying is ultimately not acceptable to God, but in this case, is it? We have to say the question is it's not so much is it acceptable Right? Because God doesn't find any sin acceptable. Every sin, every sin, no matter how small, how big, every sin is offensive to God. But does God ultimately extend grace in a moment like this? And why would he? Well, consider the alternative. If David doesn't lie on this account, he puts not only his own life, but the lives of those he's with at risk. So his deceit ultimately is keeping the Israelites alive. And God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And we live in a fallen world. And sometimes when we don't know any better, we don't know what to do, we, we do commit sin. And, and we do so because we try to preserve life. Or, or, we, or we try to do so, we do so for the, for the better good. And thankfully, God's grace is there to cover our sin. We don't do so proudly. We don't boast in the sin. We plead and we lean into God's grace and mercy. And we thank him. That there is grace and mercy to help us to walk um, in this life. And we'll talk more about this at the end of the message. So David's time spent in uncircumcised territory, it's blessed with success. He forms a bond with Achish that, as we will see in the first two verses of 28, chapter 27 really should have, I think, should have ended in uh, 28 verse 2. Um, Again, remember chapters and verses, those are, all, uh, they are interpretive annotations. They are not inerrant. They are not infallible. They were put there by man many, many years after it was written. Um, but we see this bond um, culminates in the first two verses of 28. In fact, when Achish says, hey, you're going to be my bodyguard for life, literally in the Hebrew, Achish is saying, you're going to be the keeper for my head for life. And that's ironic if you think about it, right? Because what other Philistines' head did David end up keeping? Goliath's, right? He kept it by removing it from the body and taking it to Jerusalem. So you have to wonder, if, you're, if you were a Hebrew Israelite hearing this story for the first time, you've got to be wondering, well, how is David going to keep his head? Is he going to remove it from his body or is he going to preserve it? What's going to happen? Well, well, we'll find out next week when we go into those Chapters. But for now, let's go ahead and read chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war, to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said, Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shinnum And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold there's a medium at indoor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, "Divine for me, by his spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you." The woman said to him, "Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life so bring, to bring about my death?" But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, No punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up. And he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul at once full, fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant's. Let me set a morsel of bread before you, and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to the words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night." So chapter 28 reminds us, after it talks about the bond between Achish and David, it reminds us that Samuel is dead, right? The man who once was the voice of God to Saul, and not only to Saul, but to Israel, he's gone. And we read about this back in the beginning of chapter 25 when uh, Samuel passed away. But this is to help set the scene before us. It also tells us that there are no necromancers, there are no mediums in the land legally, anyway. Right? For in his faithfulness, one of the good things that Saul did was he expelled them per the command of the Torah. And this is important information because it helps set the scene to the great lengths that Saul goes to commit this sin. So when the Philistines gather and the Israelites gather for war and Saul sees the Philistines before him, they cause great fear in his hearts. And as such, he desperately tries to hear God. At this moment of need, of desperation, he wants to hear God. He wants to know what he needs to do, but God is silent. And that shouldn't be a surprise. The very God that he wants to hear from is the God of the priests whom he slaughtered. Remember, 85 priests he slaughtered, plus the village of Nob in chapter 22. Along with the other sins that Saul has committed, it's no mystery as to why Yahweh is not speaking to Saul. So in his desperation, Saul knowingly, willfully, with much effort, sins against God. Saul knows that sorcery, engaging with mediums and fortune tellers and the occult ultimately is sinful. Leviticus 20 verse 6, if a person turns, as Saul's doing here, turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut them off from among his people. Or consider Deuteronomy 18, 10, 12. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations the Lord your God is driving them out before you this is why Saul expelled them from the land they're not they're not supposed to be among the people at all and the fact that they were expelled makes them hard to find Right? It's like trying to find a drug dealer on, a, on the corner of the streets when it's illegal. Like, they're not going to be there. Right? If the police are doing their job, the drug dealer is not just going to be on the corner of the street saying, I got drugs, who needs drugs? You have to put in some effort. You have to take risk to go find the drug dealer. You have to do the same here for the medium. If you want a medium, you have to put in the effort to find them. This is a sin that requires the effort of finding one, of Saul disguising himself, and then Traveling to commit the sin. It's, it's, it's premeditation. Um, his desperation, this leads him to the witch, the woman medium at Endor. So Saul asks her to call up Samuel. Now, you, some have wondered, is this really Samuel? Is this actually Samuel, or is this a demonic spirit acting like Samuel? When we look at the text plainly, and I'll admit, in the past, I have held the view it wasn't Samuel, it was a demonic spirit imitating uh, Samuel. But when we look at the text plainly, and you read this, there's nothing here to think that it's not Samuel. Everything in the text is pointing it's Samuel. There's nothing in God's word um, in Samuel to say it's not Samuel. And there's nothing in the New Testament that, that corrects us in that understanding either. Also, consider the response of the medium in verse 12. Right? She cries out, she cries out when the spirit rises. It's like she's never seen this before. Right? She's, it's like, whoa, this is actually happening, and there's actually a spirit. She's, she's scared. So it's actually happening, and it's, and it's a response that she wasn't expecting. So she's not in control of the situation at the moment. Also, the spirit speaks of information um, that is shared between Samuel and Saul. In the conversation, Samuel is alluding to information that, that we've read about back in chapter 15. He knows what's going on. He knows the kingdom is going to David. And he knows why, because he references the Amalekites. But either way, whether you believe it to be Samuel or or to be a spirit, Saul is judged for his actions. The guidance he was hoping to receive ultimately becomes his final verdict in his life. And this sinful act would be the one of which God would judge Saul with the punishment of death. And not only his death, but the death of his three sons. And that includes Jonathan, David's beloved friend. So Samuel tells Saul in verse 19 that tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Now, some have argued that by Samuel saying this, this shows that Saul is saved, that Saul is redeemed. Um, But... What Samuel could have also been using, more likely was using, was a generic expression to say, hey, tomorrow you and your sons are going to be in the afterlife with me. You're going to be in Sheol with me. And in Sheol in the Old Testament was understood to be where the dead, both the wicked and the righteous, went to reside. There's no mention of judgment by Samuel here. So there's nothing to say, we can't conclusively by this statement say, oh, Saul is saved, we're going to see him in heaven. We ultimately, we don't know that. But when we look at Saul's life, when we look at how it's explained in, te- in the text, there's nothing for us to think that we will see him. Now, Jonathan, I'm, I'm fairly confident we'll see him. His heart was like David's. He was, he was faithful to Yahweh. So we, I would expect we would see Jonathan. Saul, probably not. But we can't say for certainty until, until, well, until we're with Samuel, in the same place that he's at right now. So this revelation of judgment upon Saul Ultimately, it's too much for him. He hasn't eaten beforehand because he was hoping that by fasting, he would uh, facilitate. And facilitate means to make it easier, to to make it more successful. Uh, And so he's hoping to facilitate the spiritual encounter by fasting beforehand. And now that he's heard the news that his number is going to be called up the next day, he falls face down. He falls in a way that's going to be similar to his death. Only after persistent encouragement from the medium and from his servants does Saul eat. So in these two chapters, we have read the actions of two men, one who is called to be king, one who is a king, one who's after God's heart, one who's after his own heart. And both actions are done in moments of fear and uncertainty. But again, we have two different outcomes, one of success and prosperity for David and for Saul, one of judgment in the form of of death. So, why was David granted success and not Saul? After all, David, being the Lord's anointed, trusting the Lord, he had no reason to fear Saul. He didn't have to flee from Saul, but yet he did. Right? He faltered he there in his faith. He, he had a moment of, of doubt, of uncertainty, and of fear, and he fled from the land of Judah and went into the land of the Philistines. At the same time, though, because of his anointing, because of the promises of God and how God has already blessed David, David had confidence to go forth into the land of the Philistines, um, a place he once fled from in fear he now runs to uh, for refuge. But ultimately, again, remember the fortress, the stronghold of David isn't the Philistines. It's, it's not Ziglag, it's, it's Yahweh, it, it's God. Remember the key distinction between David and Saul, Right? And this this has been the theme, since, really, since Saul has been anointed to be king. And Samuel told Saul, and God told Samuel, I'm going to find a man who's after my heart, who will reign. That's the distinction between Saul. Saul is a king like the kings of the other nations, a king that seeks to serve himself, to glorify himself, to live for himself. That is the key distinction between these two. That does not mean that David never falters, that he never fears for his life. You can have full confidence in God and still experience this and still falter, nor does it mean that David never sins. Here, he lies to Achish, and as we go forward, we're going we're to read more about David's sins. So how is that acceptable before God, but Saul's sin is not? Well, let's look at Saul's sin a little bit more closely. Right? We've already talked about David's sin, so let's talk about Saul's sin a little bit more closely. Saul's sin ultimately was a direct act of rebellion against God, not man. David's lying to Achish. He's lying to an uncircumcised Philistine. Right? Still a sin, yes, but he's not acting in rebellion against God. Saul's sin certainly was more serious and more indicative of a hard heart. Consider the words of Samuel. Back in chapter 15, verse 23, to Saul. When Saul finds out the kingdom is going to be torn from him, Samuel says, Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. There are some sins that are more serious than other sins. Plain and simple, all sins are offensive to God. Yes, but some are more offensive, some carry more weight. Some are more destructive with the relationships in our lives. Some are more destructive with the relationship with God. And as in the case of Saul, some sins are reflective of the hardness of one's heart towards God. Divination is rebellion. See, Saul's, here, Saul's sin here with the witch of Endor wasn't like a whoopsie, right? It wasn't like a moment of, of weakness, it was a sin that was born out of intentionality, right? It was premeditated, but ultimately he desired to do it because his life was in constant rebellion to God, right? It wasn't like he's walking faithfully and he's walking through, through the streets of Endor and there happened to be a shop of necromancers or a medium open and this is something that the culture did. No, like it was put away for a reason, not to give opportunity, but Saul's life was one of such that to do this sin, He was already there. His heart was already hardened. He was already in that dark place. He lived a life that continually sought to serve itself rather than God. Hence, the monument in Carmel after the fight with the Amalekites. It was a life that refused to trust in God, and as such, God rejected Saul. Saul didn't care about the commands of God ultimately. So when Saul needed God the most, when he saw the Philistine army, God was not there God was silent. Saul never truly woke up, as we talked about last week. He never truly woke up from his sinful life. He never repented and turned to the light. And that's ultimately because Saul's heart was never after God's heart, like David's heart is. Think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Jesus calls us to live our lives perfectly as our Father in heaven is perfect. At the same time, in doing so, he shows us that We can't do that, right? It's impossible for us to live in perfect obedience, but rather it all comes down to our motives and whose will we are chasing. Are we chasing after God's will or are we chasing after our own will? If we are chasing after God's will, if we are chasing after Christ, following him as he calls us to do, then when fear comes, when the Philistines gather before us and anxiety comes or when bad news hits, or we see the storm clouds gather, or the flood waters rise, we might falter in our trust for a bit, but we won't fall away. We might stumble, but we're not going to fall down permanently from the presence of God. We'll cling to Christ. We'll cling to his words. We will remain faithful, and we will trust him in all things. And this is why the doctrine of eternal security, the doctrine of assurance, is important for the believer to know that once you're you're with him, You can't be lost. And that gives us confidence to continue to go after him. So when Satan says, hey, you're guilty of the sin, you can be like, no, I'm not. I committed it, yes, but I'm going to confess it. I'm going to seek forgiveness because it's there. It's waiting for me. And it's in these moments that we'll be able to go to him in prayer. And he will listen and he will answer because we're praying his will and we're praying his will because we're obedient to his word, unlike Saul who rejected it. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. But if we're not chasing after God, if we're not seeking his will, then we're not on the road to Calvary, where we need to be. We're not following Jesus. And we, mo- we are most certainly are not close to God. So when the storm clouds do g- g- gather or the floods rise, or the election doesn't go the way we want it to go, or we lose our job, someone dear to us dies, or we get news of a terminal medical diagnosis or some life-altering condition, or maybe depression hits you with a force like you've never felt it before, or whatever calamity that might arise in our lives that gives us fear, anxiety, and stress, if we're not following after God's will, God's not going to be there for you. You're not going to be able to hear from him. Some of you when disaster strikes you wonder where is the church? I'm in desperate need, where is the church? You might even wonder where is God? I am praying to him. But better question is where were you before the need arose? The common theme with Saul is he only sought God and his guidance when he needed something. Outside of that Saul lived for himself. When fear came to him, yes, he needed God, he needed Samuel, he needed the wisdom guidance. But when granted success, like the Amalekites, he didn't need God. He exalted himself. He built a monument to himself. If your life, when it is rosy and cheery and all sunshine and rainbows, and you live it for yourself, and you claim to know God or you claim to be part of the church, yet your life is devoid of such evidence, don't be surprised that when the rain clouds do come come and it's the darkest hour of your life, that God in the church is not there. Don't be surprised by that. This is what's happening to Saul. It's his darkest hour, and God is not there. Samuel isn't there. It's only by grace of God, an act of God, to allow Samuel to give Saul the bad news. Now, I'm not saying that God will not extend grace to you. Grace, as long as you are breathing, there's always an opportunity to experience God's grace if he wills it. And I'm not saying that the church will not still extend its gracious hand to you, especially if you reach out for it. Even Saul had been given numerous opportunities. But sooner or later, God's grace stops. And it will either lead you to repentance, or it will lead you further down the road of depravity, as it did for Saul which led him to the sin of divination. God was silent, and he couldn't stand it. And rather than repenting of his sins, he took the matters in his own hands, and he committed a more grave sin of divination. So, how do we we prevent this? How do we keep ourselves close to God? Or how do we get ourselves back closer to God, back to where we ought to be? Well, first, if you're not a believer, confess your sins, repent of them, That is, turn away from your sins. Do what you need to do to leave them behind. The words of Jesus, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Not literally, it's metaphorically strong language to emphasize. You need to do all that you can to not sin, to turn away from them. And then be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as you enter into a covenant relationship, not only with God, but with the church. So we can walk together, so that when the dark clouds do gather, you're not alone. Second, if you are a believer... You have to understand this if you are a believer god has always been near you're justified by the works of christ his shed blood not by your works and your sin is you're not significant enough nor are your sins powerful enough to cause you to overpower the power of christ and what he has done for you once you're justified you are always justified so please understand that if you are a believer God is there, though he might be silent for a season. He's still there. You're still with him. But he might be silent for a season to discipline you. We talked about that in Romans 2, 4 last week, right? He might be silent in order, might be kind and patient with you, so he, you can repent. He will not let go of you. Consider John 10, 29. Jesus says, I, Jesus, the son of God, he's the one that gives eternal life. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, never. and the Greek, that means never, right? Like, the, like it means never. There's no asterisk next to it. There's no exception. They will never perish. And no one, that means no one, will snatch them out of my hand. Whose hand? The hand of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who initially gave them eternal life. But not only that, he goes on, he says, my Father, so the Father, the Son of God, gave Jesus the people to him by which Jesus gives them eternal life. He's greater than all, And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So not only are we in the hand of Jesus, who is the one who gave us eternal life, but we're also in the hand of the Father, who gave them to Jesus. So we got two persons of the Trinity that our souls, our eternal security, is resting in. You're not going anywhere. I I, I don't care who you are or, or what you have done. You're not going. If you are saved, you are always saved. And this is why when we trip or stumble, the doctrine of assurance, the doctrine of eternal security is important Because when we trip or stumble, no matter how grave the sin is, we can think, boy, I need to repent. And I can repent because I'm in my Father's hand. I'm in the hand of Jesus Christ. He has given me eternal life. The Holy Spirit that he sent dwells within me, and I can go before him boldly into the the throne room. And I can seek grace. I can seek help in the time of mercy because of what Christ has done. Satan doesn't want you to do that. Satan wants you to think, oh, you, you better make that up. You, you better go confess to a priest now. You better go do these works. You need to do, you're not going to get out of this. You need to do so much work to get back right with Christ. In fact, you know what? Don't even go to church anymore. Don't even hang out with your, your fellow believers because you're not worthy of it. You, you blew it. No, scripture's like, yeah, you sin, you tripped. Now confess your sin, repent of it. And, and give God praise. Um, weep about it. Absolutely. Weep. Weep. Get your tears out and then stand up and walk boldly as a forgiven believer. So whether you're a new believer or a believer for over 80 years, this is what we must do in order to remain close. And I'm going to give you some uh, action steps here. I guess if you want to call them action steps. Uh, but we, we must do this every day. And I don't want you, I'm not going to tell you, hey, just focus on one thing. Just do one thing. No. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus never says, hey, deny this one part of your life. No, he says, deny your whole self. Right? The Christian life, it's your whole self. So I'm not going to tell you, focus on this one thing. No, you need to do all these things, right? It's, consider the cost of discipleship. You need to do all these things if you want to remain close to God. First and foremost, we must confess our sins and seek forgiveness. 1 John 1.9. Also, if you're looking for verses to memorize, as we'll talk about here in a moment... All these verses would be worthy of memorization. First, John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? We confess our sins because we recognize who Jesus is and how he's worthy of our praise. And in that, we recognize, I'm not worthy to praise him. I'm not worthy of his mercy and grace. That leads us to confess our unworthiness and our sins, thus leading us to seek the forgiveness, and we trust that he will cleanse us, that it's him that does the cleaning. There's no amount of work that we can do. We can take all the communion juice that we have, dump it over our heads, and you will still be covered in your sin apart from the blood of Christ. We need the blood of Christ for the forgiveness. He's the one that cleanses us. So after we do that, then we repent of them, satisfying the Lord's will, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, where he writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Right, He's patient with us. That's good. Not wishing that any should perish. That doesn't mean that no one's going to be peri- no one's going to perish. He just wishes that no one should perish, but that all ultimately should reach repentance. So we desire to repent because we want to do the Father's will. There it is. Reach repentance. Do repentance. And repentance starts with confessing the sin that we've committed, seeking forgiveness, and then walking rightly in the light of Christ. But in order to do this, well, we have to know what the sins are. We have to know how to walk, and that's, we have to meditate on his word night and day. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Some of you meditate on fantasy football stats more than you do the word of God. The word of God should be dominating our thoughts. You know how you take captive every thought, as Paul tells us to? When the word of God is there. Because when a thought comes into your head, the word of God is there to say, ooh, that's not a good word. You don't want that in there. And so you rebuke it. You get it out. or or, or how you react, or how you love people, or the need for prayer. That's all because the Word of God is in there, and the Spirit's using it to guide you. And that leads us to Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active. Right? It's not some ancient document that's dead and useless. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need the Word of God to know ourselves and to know others, to know how to love them, to how to walk with them, to know what our sins are, to be aware of them, to stop being ignorant of them, to stop being arrogant of ourselves. So for some of us, that means we need to start a Bible reading plan. And don't wait until the calendar year. That's like, oh, I'm going to wait until January to lose weight. Well, it's September. Start losing weight today. Like, Start the Bible reading plan today. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know if, if tomorrow is even going to come. So start now. Don't wait. Get into the word of God. Start eating of it. Start drinking of it. You don't know when the storm clouds are going to gather. And you don't know what verse that God's going to use in your life to pull you through that dark time. So get into it. There, if, there's, if you ever wonder, oh, what should I read? Just read the Bible. Like, if you're looking for something to do, something to read, read the Bible. Have a Bible next to the toilet, right? Like, uh, it's a moment to read. Don't bring the phone with you into the bathroom. Keep it a sanctuary as much as possible. Keep the smartphones out of the bathroom. So when you're sitting there and you're you're trying to keep your mind occupied, open up Scripture. Get your head into the book. And then start memorizing Scripture as well. Memorize it, even if it's just one verse a week. If you're working on that Scripture you have in your pocket, on your app, whatever it is, it will be in your head. And you'll be surprised at how you will find that Scripture. It doesn't matter what the Scripture is. You will find how it just keeps popping up in life. You will just, people will say things, you're in situations, and that verse, the one that you're memorizing, comes to play because that's the Spirit. The Word is living. It's active. And if you need help on, like, well, what verses to memorize, well, use the verses I bring up on the sermons. Use the verses I've mentioned this morning. Or get with me. I can recommend some apps um, and some other tools you can use uh, as well. Uh, The Navigators actually have a good topical memory verse system you can use. And as we do Scripture, as we do this, this should lead us, as we confess our sins, become aware of them, we read Scripture, we recognize who He is, we learn more about how mighty God is, we're like, boy, I can't do this. I need a Redeemer. I need Jesus. I need the Spirit to fill my soul. And that should lead us to pray continually, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. If you're confessing your sins, you're seeking forgiveness, you're working on repentance, this should be the easiest thing for you to do. You will feel the weight of your, uh, the, the sin, the burden of the sin, and you will be drawn to your knees naturally, especially if you're in his word. Because you're going to read it, and you're going to be like, boy, I just, I mess up. All the time. And you're gonna be like, I need you. And you're gonna recognize only by prayer can you walk in the light, only by prayer can you be faithful to reading scripture daily. Because sometimes going to the well is tiring. Sometimes going to the fountain of truth, you're like, I know I need to go there. I have a headache today, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. I know what I'm gonna read already. I've read that book before. I don't I got I got so many things on my mind. Well that's why you need to pray. You need to pray as you go there. You need to pray as you walk. So pray continually. Fourth thing is we need to worship and fellowship together with the body of Christ so we can encourage, serve, rebuke one another, correct one another, teach, and praise God together. For, for me, I love hearing the voices of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ after a week lifted together, after a week of, of suffering, after a week of resisting sin, temptation, or maybe after a week of falling and not living like we should, but hearing the voices of other brothers and sisters in Christ who are dealing the same thing with I am, but yet confessing the same belief I am and singing to the same, same God. It's incredibly encouraging. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, 22, which speaks to this. And there are many passages we could pull from the New Testament on this topic of fellowship in, in worship. Uh, the entire book of Ephesians, it highlights that. Uh, but this morning, I'm going to just deal with 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That's Paul's talking about the elders, those who serve the church, those who teach in the church, um, so those who labor among the body. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, so no laziness is Laziness is not acceptable within the church. Where You wonder where the church is when you're in need? Well, where were you when others were in need? Where were you when it was going good for you? Don't be idle as you're part of the church. Serve the church. Serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. The church exists not so that you may be served, but so that you may serve others and God may be glorified. That's making disciples. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all we be patient with each other because, well, God is patient with us, thankfully. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirits. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. right? So Paul says, test everything. Give you an example. Black Lives Matter movement. Test it. Why do I say that? Black Lives Matter, it's a spiritual movement. It's connected with a faith movement called Yoruba out of Nigeria. Uh, the co-founders, you can google this, this is not like some conspiracy theory. The founders have come out, they I'll, I'll read you their words. In regard to saying their name, right, you know, when they say, say their name, that's a spiritual practice of the occult. Patrice Kohlers, one of the co-founders, says, it is literally, almost. Re-, this is a quote, it's almost literally resurrecting a spirit so they can work through us to get the work that we need to get done. She goes on saying, I wasn't raised with honoring ancestors. As I got older and started to feel like I was missing something, ancestral worship became really important. So when you say their name as part of the Black Lives Matter, you're engaging, either willfully or ignorantly, and ancestral worship connected with the Yoruba movement, which is born out of um, West Africa, out of Nigeria. You can look this all up. It's all out there. Malina Abdullah, another co-founder, says at its core, it is a spiritual movement. The, the sentiment behind Black Lives Matter, that's the bait. That's what gets you involved. But it's, it's, it's ancestral worship. It's a form of divination. Don't do it. You know now... You're responsible. Um, I'll give you a podcast in case you're like, well, I don't know, I want more information about this. Just Thinking Podcast. Episode, The Church of BLM. Daryl Harrison, Virgil Walker, two black pastors, they spent two hours giving information. They do their research and be prepared to take notes. We'll break it all down for you if you have any doubts about the Black Lives Matter movement. It is not a Christian movement. It is something that we, as a church, can never associate with. And we will never associate with that movement. Do lives, do people of different color matter? Yes, they do. Of course they do. Anyone who bears the Imago Dei, they matter. And we love them and we care for them, right? That's clear and obvious. But BLN, its organization, it's antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to the word of God. It's antithetical to the family. Uh, to what is right, and to what is true. So we need to abstain from it. We need to test everything. Our worldview matters. How you vote matters. Test everything. Test whoever you're voting for. Test it with the word of God. Your Christian life, you're not called to the Christian life to keep that worldview apart from reality. You're called to use that to reform, to redeem culture. So test everything. And we as a church especially have to. Paul goes on and says, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, especially, I want us to consider verse 23, where Paul goes on and says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God of peace himself, he's sanctifying us. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we do these things, not for selfish gains, then we will be like a wise man who builds his house on a foundation of rock and not sand, so that when trouble comes, we will be ready. We will already be near to God, and we will not feel alone. Come, whatever may. Now, let us come to the Lord's table right now, and we're going to partake in fellowship with him, being reminded that he is the one who does the work in us. It's Christ who sanctifies us. It's Christ whose blood was shed so that our sins may be forgiven, is not dependent on us. And that allows us to enter into his holy presence, to be sanctified by his word, so that we may live righteously and remain near to him. So that though this world may bring us trouble, so that the Philistines may gather before us, he will speak to us. We will hear him. He won't remain silent, and he will give us peace, a peace that's rooted in the truth that one day Jesus Christ is returning the elements the bread and the juice they cause us to look back at what christ has done to be reminded to look forward at what christ will do when he returns let us pray father thank you for your word this morning thank you for your mercy and grace thank you for the example of david thank you for the example of saul We ask that you will speak to each and every one of us, Father. And if you have remained far from any of us, help us to get back in right relationship with you. Those of us who are believers, Father, you're there and you're just waiting for us to confess our sins and to repent of them. Guide us in that. Break our spirit our soul if need be so that we can be there with you, Father. So that we can enjoy this rich fellowship with your Son, that we may taste the goodness of the gospel, and that we can labor faithfully with our brothers and sisters in Christ and continue to have cups that are overflowing with the good news, and we can share it with others. If people don't know what it's like, Father, someone here who doesn't know you, open their eyes, help them see the truth, help them see the reality of who you are, the reality of the gospel. Help us to test everything in in our lives, Father. Help us not to take anything for granted. Help us to be wise and discerning. Help us not to be carried away by uh, false ideologies or anything that might lead us astray from your truth. Help us to seek what is good. Help us to seek to build one another up. Encourage us, Father. Those who are brokenhearted, I ask that you would mend our hearts, that you would allow us to,